said, if you have a Bible open to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We started a couple of weeks ago a sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, if you've been a part of that, I, I, you know, I hear a lot, of, a lot of chatter around the church and a small group and just in conversation with people. Uh, it's really exciting to see the impact that this book is having on the people of Redemption Church. I hear people just wrestling with the meaning and wrestling with the, the lessons that we're pulling out of Ecclesiastes so far, and I think it's going to continue to get better and better as we get deeper into this book. So we're going to look at chapter 3 today. I'm going to read the chapter. Uh, it won't take that long. I'm going to read the chapter, and then we'll come back to different portions of this chapter and look at them more closely. Verse 1. There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. A time to search and a time to count as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But no one can discover the work God has done from the beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. I know that everything God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that, we'll, so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is has already been and whatever will be already is. However, God seeks justice for the persecuted. I also observed under the sun... There is a wickedness at the place of judgment, and there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, since there is a time for every activity and every work. I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam, and they may see for themselves that they are like animals. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam go upward and the spirits of animals go downward to the earth. I have seen that there is nothing better for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward. For who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? Let's pray as we look at God's word together. Father, we ask for wisdom. That's what this book seeks to pass on, wisdom. We seek wisdom from you, wisdom that guides us in how you want us to live our lives, wisdom that enables us to see clearly what so many don't see clearly. God, speak to us from your word, which is living and active. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's a tough chapter. 
It's a tough book. We've talked about that, I think, every week. If, if, you're, if this is your first Sunday here, um, we've kind of emphasized this idea that there's a theme throughout the book of futility. Ecclesiastes is about all of the futility that we face in this life, as he says so often in the book, under the sun. Life on earth. Life in this, this universe that we've been placed in. There's futility in, in work, there's futility in building wealth, there's futility in relationships, futility in, in nearly every aspect of life. And this comes from someone who gained and attained great things in his life. He tells us about his accomplishments early in the book, about all the wealth that he gathered and the servants that he had and the homes that he built and the gardens that he planted and everything that he succeeded at. And he says it was all futile. It was futile. It didn't satisfy. It didn't produce the type of lasting satisfaction that we as human beings long for. And so as I I looked at this chapter, I think this is the toughest one yet. Because he seems to go all over the place. But but I I think there is a bit of a theme to all of this in chapter 3. And so I've broken it down, as you see in your handout, I've broken it down, problem, result, and solution. He presents the problem. The problem is this, the universe is beyond human control. Now that may sound like not a big deal until we realize the implications of that. The universe is beyond human control. I think that we live most of our lives Dodging that reality. We live as if we have control. We live as if we control the outcome of everything that happens in our lives. And there's a lot of things that support that idea in our minds. We can accomplish things, can't we? We can do things. In fact, as I, as I wrote this, uh, I wrote this in my home, which we, we purchased last spring and spent six months remodeling and putting an addition on. And as I, I sat in, in, in the addition of our home, I looked around and I said, we did this. This wasn't here a year ago. We accomplished this. We designed this. We built this. We put this together. This is here because of human effort. It's something that we did. It's something that we accomplished. And when you think about life from that perspective, you get the idea that perhaps you're in control. Look what I did. I built something. How much of our lives do we spend thinking that way? I'm in control. If I I get up and I work hard, I can make things happen. The wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes is that when we step back from that a little bit and we look at what's really going on, we realize we're not as in control as we'd like to be. There are so many things that frustrate our plans to get things done, to make things happen, to to create a life that we want to have. And so we we see here in Ecclesiastes 3, this is how he starts the chapter. There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. I think that's the thesis of the next eight verses. 
He goes on in the next eight verses, he says, there's a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. And he goes on and on, and he's offering all these contrasting actions and and things that are happening. This is is very poetic in the sense that he's using a, a literary device here where you take two opposites and you present them together with the intention of including everything in between. So when he says there's a time for every activity under heaven, he starts to give examples. A time to give birth and a time to die means there's not only a time to give birth and a time to die, but there's a time for everything in between. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot and everything in between. And so he, he wants to give us this picture that life has its own rhythm. The universe and our lives within it exist in sort of this preordained rhythm of life. Something that is vastly out of our control. All of life happens at the appropriate time, but here's the problem. Those times are set by God, not by man. We don't necessarily decide what season it is. He does. We're reminded of this in Western Pennsylvania every year. By the way, Western Pennsylvania has been scientifically proven to be the cloudiest city in the entire United States of America. Why do we live here? I don't know. (laughs) It really is. It's cloudier. We have less sunshine annually than Seattle or any other place in the U.S. That's why days like today when the sun comes out, it's so refreshing. We have no control over that. We don't control whether it's cloudy or whether it's sunny. God controls that. That's, that's, what he's, that's what he's pointing us to here. There is an occasion for everything, a time for every activity under heaven, and you don't determine those times. There might be a lot of things that you are in control of. In the big picture of things, it's very little control, isn't it? It's very little control. If man were in control, he may gain more of what he desires from this world, but as it is, man is not in control. That's the problem. That's, that's what, that, if you read through Ecclesiastes, and I'd encourage you to read through the whole book in one sitting if you can. It'd take you maybe 25, 30 minutes to read from the beginning to the end of the book. The problem here is this. We're not in control. Here's, here's a man who did it all, who accomplished everything, who had everything. And he said, it's futile. It's just absolutely futile. I still can't control a thing. Nothing that matters anyhow. So the problem is the universe is beyond human control. The result is that man does not gain the satisfaction he desires. Because the universe is ultimately outside of human control, human attempts to gain from this world are futile. Futile. Futile means, let me just define futile in case you weren't here the last couple of weeks. Futile doesn't mean that it's absolutely meaningless. Futile doesn't mean that it doesn't bring any satisfaction. Futile means that it doesn't bring lasting satisfaction. In the, in the, the Hebrew word here that we've, we've talked about earlier in this series, hevel. Hevel is, is this concept of, of it's something you can't quite grasp. 
like grasping at smoke, he says in other places in the book. It's just, it just does, you can't latch on to it and hold on to it and keep it. It fades, it dissipates, it goes away. That's the futility he's talking about. Man does not gain the satisfaction he desires. Let's look at verse nine. He says, what does the worker gain from his struggles? This is one of his main gripes throughout the book. What do we gain from all of this? What does the worker gain from his struggles? His work doesn't last. That's a problem. I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. I have seen the task God has given to the children, that he's given to mankind. He has made everything appropriate. He, notice, God is the one that is in control here. He has made everything appropriate. He has put eternity in their hearts. There's a lot of debate over what exactly that means. And, and, and I don't know that I can solve that debate for us today, but certainly it's, it's this concept that we have a desire for a control that we do not have. We have the desire to understand things that are beyond our understanding. We have the desire to control and manipulate things that we cannot control and manipulate. Only God, only God has that power. He says, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. The relationship that we have as finite human beings to a God who is infinite is mind-boggling. I mean, some of, the, some of the things that I think cause me the greatest anxiety are things like time and the universe. <laughs> when you think about the universe just as a reality of something that we live in, we're on this big rock that is flying through space around this unfathomable huge ball of fire. And we can't control any of that. We can't even understand that. We can't, we can't, we can't, we can't even begin to get our heads around. And then when we move away from our solar system and realize that we live in a galaxy full of solar systems, in a universe that is full of galaxies. There is so much here that we can't understand. We are finite. We are these tiny, little, insignificant human beings trying to relate to a God who has no beginning or no end, who has created this universe simply by speaking the words. This is unbelievable. This is beyond our ability to comprehend. I think that's what it means that he's put eternity in our hearts. How do we understand a God who had no beginning? How do we understand that which is infinite, which is truly all-powerful, which is truly all-knowing? We have a beginning. We celebrate the day that our life began every year. Well, the older you get, I don't know that you celebrate it as much as acknowledge or admit it, <laughs> but we, we know when we began. 
And there'll come a day when our life on earth will end. But God, he is forever. The author of Ecclesiastes is stepping back and he's thinking about that. And he's saying, okay, so what? So I put an addition on a home in Lower Burrow. Big deal. I'm so finite in comparison to the God who created me. In, in, in addition to our, our inability to understand things that are, that are so obviously true. I mean, it's a reality. Everything I just described about, you know, we live in, inside of a solar system, inside of a galaxy, inside of a universe is reality. There's no denying it. We look up at, this, at the sky at night and see the stars. And if you're anything like me, you think, I don't even know what to do with that. I just don't even know what to do with it. I can understand this, like what I can see right now, I can process, I can make sense of it, but the universe is beyond comprehension. And if I believe that that universe was created by an infinite God who had no beginning and will have no end, that's awe-inspiring. That's awe-inspiring. In addition to all of that, he touches on human frailty. Verse 16, he says, I also observed under the sun there is wickedness at the place of judgment and there's wickedness at the place of righteousness. By the way, chapter three has a, a ton of language that is difficult to translate from Hebrew to English. That's one of the difficult, this is, I think, one of the most challenging chapters in the book. Not only because so much of it seems so unchristian. I mean, the conclusions he's coming to aren't the types of things that we as Christians normally say or the way that we speak. But in addition to all of that, there's a lot of difficult language. And so some of this seems a little bit clunky at times. It's because there's a lot of debate over how to translate some of these verses. But in verse 17, he says, I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked since there is a time for every activity and every work. I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam and they may see for themselves that they are like animals. This is one of the, I think, seemingly unchristian conclusions that he comes to. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. I think I would disagree with that. You and I might take issue with that, but let him make the argument. Because I think there's something very important in what he's trying to communicate here. So let's let him make the argument. Verse 19, for the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so does the other. That's one way they are the same. They all have the same breath. That's two ways that they are the same. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. People have no advantage over animals because everything is futile. He's saying we're not accomplishing, we're not getting any, not, maybe not accomplishing, we're not gaining anything more from this life than the animals. Then he says in verse 20, all are going to the same place. The place he's referring to is the ground. All come from dust and all return to dust. Verse 21, who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam go upward and the spirits of animals go downward to the earth. He's, he's claiming agnosticism here. Who knows? He's, he is aware 
that there are people who would argue that we are distinctly different from animals and that our souls go on to live forever, whereas the animals, I mean, he's aware of that argument. And he's saying, who knows? I can't prove that. Can't prove it one way or the other. In chapter two, he made the case that the wise and the fool aren't that much different from each other because they both die. That was the cynical conclusion that he argues in chapter two. It's, I mean, there's some advantage to being wise, he says, but in the end, whether you're a wise man or whether you're a fool, you'd both die. He says, that's futile. Chapter three, he says, whether you're a man, a human, or an animal, both die. You come from the same place, we come from the ground, we return to the same place, we return to the ground, we have the same breath in us, but all die. What he's doing here is he's saying, if there's a spectrum, and on one end of the spectrum there's animals, and on the other end of the spectrum there's God, and you want to place man on that spectrum, he's saying, from what I can see, we have a lot more in common with the animals than we do with God. God who is infinite, who controls the time, who sets the seasons, who created the universe, who has, who, who's, whose work lasts forever. When you compare man to God, we look a lot more like animals. Our, our work on earth does not last. Our life on earth is fragile and frail. It can be ended in a moment. Growing up, uh, going through my teenage years, there were uh, three, three friends that died in car accidents. And I remember being shocked at how easily human life can end. I mean, there's, there's few things in life that are more sudden than a fatal car accident. Where you just go from one moment to living life like everybody else. And without even any warning, you're gone. That's a tough, tough reality. Ecclesiastes is pointing us to that. You think human beings are in control of their own existence? We don't control when we're born. We have very little control over when we die. What we do doesn't last. We're, what's the difference between us and the animals? The problem, the universe is beyond human control. The result, man does not gain the satisfaction he desires. He's made his case. That's his argument. He's made his case by speaking of time and man's seemingly lack of control over time versus God. He's made his case by comparing human beings to the animals and saying, what advantage do we have over animals? They live and die and we live and die and nobody seems to know that either one of them were here a few years later. Now, let's get to the solution. The solution that he offers is this, that we must give up our attempts to be in control and reorient our lives to live in relationship to our creator. This is one of the most important lessons of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's, it's presented to us in one of the most difficult chapters but if we do the hard work here together of digging deep into what he's saying, there is an extremely important truth here that we must give up our attempts to be in control. That's what every human being seeks. 
Control over our own existence. Control over our own lives. We work. We fight. We manipulate. We contrive ways to control our lives. It's what we all want. And you don't have to teach anybody this. Kids, it's innate. It happens naturally. If, you, if you've ever raised kids, you know they want control, don't they? They'll do some crazy stuff to get it. I remember when our, when our, um, our middle child, um, when she was probably about three years old, she, she, learned, um, she, she learned the power of manipulation pretty profoundly, and she got really good at it. And we learned that we had to use reverse psychology with her. And so if we wanted her to do something, uh, if we asked her to do it, she would just put her foot down and absolutely not do it. It doesn't matter what you, what you were asking her to do. She was going to put her foot down and resist. And so we learned this idea of reverse psychology where we'd be like, hey, uh, whatever you do, don't go brush your teeth. And we say things like that to Whatever you do, don't, don't pick that up and put that away. And she couldn't stand it. She would get up and brush her teeth, you know, like, like she had something to prove. You know, you're not going to tell me. It was like that for a while. And then I remember the day that she caught on. And she was like, she, the, the gig was up. She busted us. She wanted to go to Dairy Queen. I was like, we're not going to Dairy Queen. I don't want to go to Dairy Queen. I mean, who, I just don't want to, who wants to take a three-year-old to Dairy Queen, right? So I said, we're not going to Dairy Queen. And she stopped and she thought for a second. And she said, Daddy. Don't take me to Dairy Queen. <laughs> she wanted control, and that hasn't changed a bit in the 10 years since then. We all want control. This is what we're living for. This is what we get out of bed for. We go to work so that we can get some money, so that we can buy the things we want to buy, or so that we can do the things that we want to do. If we're smart, we save and invest a little bit of that money so that later on in life, we have control so that we can do the things that we want. It's the whole existence of mankind. And Ecclesiastes says, no matter how hard you try, you're not in control. So what do we do? I think he's making the case here that God has set it up that way. He said, let me go back to verse 18. I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam and they may see for themselves that they are like the animals. This happens so that God wants you to see that you are not in control. And he loves you so much. He loves you so much that he will not stop showing you that you are not in control. You plan, God frustrates your plans. You work, he brings it to nothing. He will not stop until you see that you are not in control. Why? Because there's something infinitely better than being in control. That is being in relationship with the one who is. 
And so he brings this frustration on all of mankind so that we will give up our attempts to be in control and we will reorient our lives in, to live in relationship to him. It's one of the, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to understand that. But it's so important to understand life, to embrace that. Let's look at where he says this in Ecclesiastes 3. In verse 12, he says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. I know that everything God does will last forever. Contrast that to what he says earlier, where he says, what does the worker gain from his struggles? This is the case he's making, nothing. What we do doesn't last, that's the problem. What God does, verse 14, I know that everything God does will last forever. There's no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is has already been and whatever will be already is. However, God seeks justice for the persecuted. That's one of the, the verses that is translated very differently in different translations. Most translations would say something like, however, God calls the past into account. And you think, how do, how do we have God seeks justice for the persecuted and God calls the past into account? Those are fairly different things language-wise, but that's just the reality of, of this chapter. There's some things that are very difficult to translate. I think that contextually speaking, it, it makes more sense to say God calls the past into account. Regardless of how that verse should be translated, here's what he wants us to see. God's in control. What he does lasts forever. Therefore, Stop trying to be in control of your life. Stop trying to be the master of your own universe and relate to the one who is. He says in verse 22, this is another part in the chapter where I think he's making the same point. I have seen that there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward. Enjoy the life that God has given you. Enjoy the seasons that God has ordained for your life. Enjoy life in the context of a relationship with your creator. This, this, this mindset of I'm gonna control my universe, I'm gonna determine the outcome, I'm going to be the master of my own universe will always be met with absolute frustration and futility. You will not succeed. Why? Because of the mercy of God. If God allowed mankind to live that way, if he allowed us to live in a universe where our plans succeed, if he allowed us to live in a universe where you could defend the idea that man is in control, then man would not seek after God. And the whole reason for us being created is that we would relate to God. And so do you understand that it would be incredibly unjust for God to allow you to succeed in being the master of your universe? It would be incredibly un, 
merciful of him to allow everything to go the way you want it to go. Instead, what he does is he frustrates our plans. He allows us, if we will accept the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, he allows us to see how much we are a lot more like the animals than we are like God in order that we will come to him. And as he says in verse 12, enjoy the good life. The good life is life that is lived out in relationship to our creator. Now, when I relate to the creator in that way, I can enjoy things like eating and drinking and the fruits of my labors. I can enjoy the task that God has given me here on earth, as as futile as it may seem at times, because I have put myself in proper relationship to God. Those who refuse to do such will always be frustrated. Their life will never become what they hope it will be. It's absolute futility. You can't enjoy this life apart from God. I don't mean to say that there's no joy in life apart from God. I'm saying you can't enjoy this life the way you were created to. You won't find satisfaction until you find God. You won't find true meaning until you find God. Until that moment, all you have is a bunch of stuff that won't last, that won't satisfy, that ultimately is just hevel. It's futile. But God calls us to him. He calls us to more than that. He calls us to enjoy life but to do it in the context of our relationship with him. And here's a gem at the end of this chapter. In verse 22, he says, I've seen that there's nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward. Then he says, for who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? Our author lives in a pre-Jesus point in human history. He lives in you understand that God progressively revealed himself throughout human history, culminating in the life of Jesus. God was, he was making himself known. It is not as if people prior to Jesus did not have sufficient evidence of God. He always gave humankind enough revelation of himself in order for them to relate to him in the way he was calling them to. But it wasn't until the time of Jesus that he fully reveals himself. Jesus is God made manifest. Jesus is the one who comes to earth and shows us what God is ultimately like. So when he says, who can enable us to see what will happen after he dies, I understand the frustration of that statement when he wrote these words. But I also understand the fulfillment of that statement when Jesus came to earth. Who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? Jesus. Jesus can. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 14, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, 
we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the answer to every problem presented in Ecclesiastes 3. That Jesus makes known to us the Father. That Jesus reveals God to us. That Jesus makes it possible for us to live in a perfect relationship with the God who created us to live in a relationship with him. Who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? The one who comes from heaven to reveal to us that very thing. He comes to tell us how to have eternal life. Don't let your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's what happens after you die. Jesus, who since 2,000 years ago has been preparing a place for you, takes you to be with him. I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. How do we get there, Jesus? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, that's what Ecclesiastes 3 is saying we need. We need to know God. Life isn't about being in control. Life isn't about what you can gain from this world. Life is about knowing God and relating to the one who controls all time, who will call the past into account the one who created the universe beyond our ability to comprehend and understand, Jesus makes him known to us. So the last thing on the handout is this. There is greater joy than being in control. It is being safe and secure in the one who truly is, Jesus Christ, who died to save us. Every problem presented in Ecclesiastes 3 is solved by knowing Jesus. That's amazing. And it's so important to get that. It's so important that we let go of trying to be in control. And we just enjoy life with Jesus. That we just enjoy whatever little bit he's given us right now. That we just enjoy whatever season of life he has us in that we look around us and we find reasons to be satisfied in him. Everything else is absolute insanity. Trying to use this world to fulfill your own desires for control, to, to produce gain, as Ecclesiastes so often mentions, the question is, what do we gain he just asked that question again and again. What do we gain? We work, we achieve, we gather, we possess. We ha even when we succeed, what do we gain? It's insanity to live life pursuing that type of worldly gain. And it's peace to surrender to your creator and say, you're in control. I don't control the time. I don't determine what season it is. I don't even control whether I live or whether I die. You're in control. 
I don't control the people around me. You are in control. I surrender to you. Jesus makes this possible by solving the biggest problem that humankind has. That is the problem of our sin, which separates us from a holy God. And Jesus takes our sin upon himself. He suffers and he dies in our place. And then he rises from the dead, defeating death and paying for our sin. And he says, because of what I've done, you get to come and have a relationship with your creator. The God who made you so that you would know him. The God who does not allow you to be satisfied by anything less than what he created you for himself. As the worship team comes and prepares to lead us in worship, which I hope you're now prepared to do. That's the point of Ecclesiastes 3, that we would be in awe of God and that we would receive the invitation to be in relationship with God, to live life in relationship to our creator, to live life in surrender to the one who made us for himself. As we prepare to do that, as we prepare to worship, the most important decision you will ever make in your life is how you respond to Jesus Christ, who offers you this kind of peace, who offers you the forgiveness of your sins through his sacrifice on the cross, and who offers you eternal life with God forever. Something the world can't even begin to touch. Something the world can't even begin to offer us. Jesus gives it to us because he loves us. And so I ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. If there's any of us here who have never received Jesus Christ for salvation, today's the day, now is the time. Perhaps this is the time that God has set for you to believe in his son Jesus. If so, I encourage you, as we have our heads bowed and eyes closed, just to cry out to him, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Help me to live my life in relationship with you, which is the reason I was created. Grant me eternal life so that I might be with you forever and give me peace here in this life on earth as I walk with you daily. And Father, I pray for the rest of us who have already made that decision. Help us to reorient our lives, not, not based around what we can gain from your creation, but how we can live out our lives in a peaceful relationship with you, the creator. For that is the purpose for which you created us. God, we thank you. We are in awe of you. You are God and we are not. And so we worship you in Jesus' name.